Tonight we're in Revelation 6 and 7, and the Lord willing, we will cover 6 and 7. That might not happen, but it is certainly the intention for it to happen. Chapter 1, we saw the resurrected Christ, but he was in a way that we had never seen him before because he was coming in judgment. The book was about the judgment that God was bringing to the earth, and ultimately, uh, the millennial reign, and finally, the new heaven and the new earth. And so, when we saw Jesus, we saw him with these brilliant eyes and feet like brass because he was coming for the purpose of judgment. In chapters 2 and 3, we saw the condition of the churches. Uh, there were seven churches. Only two of them didn't have something negative written about them. Uh, and the other five had something that needed correction. And uh, those seven churches are a reminder of, of the condition of the church age in which we live. But by the time we got to chapter 4, we find that uh, John is caught up into heaven. Whether he's in the body or out of the body, we don't know that for certain. Whether it's just his spirit, whether he's seeing a vision, or whether the Lord literally took him into his presence, that's something that we won't know until we see John on the other side. Uh, but he's given a vision of the throne room of the Almighty, and God the Father is sitting on the throne. And he's got in his hand uh, a scroll, and there's nobody who's worthy to open that scroll except for one, and that's the line of the tribe of Judah. And Jesus comes, and Jesus takes the scroll from the hand of the Father. And when you get to chapter 6, Jesus begins opening that scroll. To open that scroll, it's written on the front and on the back, uh, indicating that there's lots of information to be disseminated, lots of information to be given out. And as each seal is broken, another judgment is revealed. Now, we read chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 last week, and I talked a little bit about them, but we're going to go back there for just a moment because this is the first of the judgments that come during the tribulation. So are you with me? There's the church age. We live in the church age from the resurrection and ascension of Jesus until Jesus comes and calls his church out of this world. What follows is seven years of tribulation. First part's called the tribulation. The second part's called the great tribulation. What happens at the end of the great tribulation, Jesus returns. We come back with him, and all of the armies are amassed in the Middle East to fight against him, and he defeats them with the power of his word. And he will establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And he will rule and reign. The lamb will lay down with, with the lion and so forth. And he'll rule for a thousand years. Uh, and then there will be the great white throne judgment. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. That, that comes way on down uh, a little later in the book of, of, of Revelation. So where we are in chapter 6 is at the beginning of the tribulation. The church is now gone. And what's, uh, what remains is the unfolding of this chronology of the tribulation period. And these six judgments move us along chronologically through the first part of the tribulation. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, With a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. This is the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. Notice that there are no arrows because he comes in peace. He comes on a white horse. He comes to, to bring peace, he says. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The one who's riding this horse is the Antichrist. 
He is the one who comes after the church has been taken out at the early stages of, uh, of the tribulation, and he comes with a promise that he can solve the problems. He comes on the white horse of victory. Everybody thinks he's coming in, sweeping in to solve all the problems, and he isn't going to have to do it with violence because he has no bow. He has no arrows to go with his bow. He comes to do it supposedly in peace. Of course, we all know the result of that is he ultimately turns uh, into uh, the tyrant uh, that we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. Now, we pick up in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where we left off. We know now this first horseman of the apocalypse is the Antichrist who is coming. But in verse 3, he says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. He's talking to John. I want you to come see what's about to occur, what's about to happen. And another horse, here's the second horse of the apocalypse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Ah, you remember he came, the Antichrist came in the beginning in a peaceful manner. But now this uh, horseman comes to take away uh, the peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. The fact that this horse is fiery red indicates the bloodshed that will occur on earth. You do know that Jesus long predicted that during this period of time that there would be wars and rumors of wars. Now, for as long as I can remember in my life, there's always been wars and there's been rumors of wars, but nothing like what will be taking place during that period of the tribulation, those early days of the tribulation. And this horseman on this uh, apocalyptic horseman who comes on this fiery red horse comes to take the peace away and people turn on one another. Now, you, you can imagine how that would happen, can't you? I mean, there's, there's thousands and millions of people who are missing. Um, how do you explain that? There's things that have changed. Life has dramatically been upended. And uh, for a little while, everything is peaceful. But before you know it, they begin turning on each other. Uh, th think about uh, the pandemic. We we've always had a little bit of uh, angst toward other people at times. But have you noticed that since people have been locked in and shut down and quarantined, that people have a tendency to be even more harsh and more mean than they've ever been in their whole lives? Have you noticed that? Can you imagine at the beginning of the tribulation, all of this upheaval that takes place because all of the church is gone <clears throat> and suddenly somebody swoops in, the Antichrist swoops in and promises to bring peace, which includes... Um, an agreement with Israel that he will be the protector of Israel, an agreement that he will break. And he's going to bring all of this peace, but suddenly that peace is gone. And that's what this uh, second horseman of the apocalypse is telling us. The peace doesn't last. The peace soon is gone, and the Antichrist will become the most sinister dictator of all time. Verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. John, I've shown you the first horseman of the apocalypse. I've shown you the second horseman of the apocalypse. Now I want to show you the third horseman of the apocalypse. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. A black horse is symbolic of judgment and specifically of the judgment of famine. Uh, you'll see that in verse 6 here in just a moment. But the judgment of famine, food becomes more scarce and more difficult to obtain. 
Um, you know, the promise of socialism is that it'll make life better for everybody, and it never does. Think of Venezuela. It never makes life better for everybody. It makes life worse for everybody except for that ruling class. They're the only ones who have a better life as a result. And so the Antichrist comes on the back of uh, socialism of some form. Uh, he comes bringing peace and promising all of these things, going to make an agreement with Israel. But then the second horseman of the apocalypse comes, and that peace is taken away, and people turn on one another. And then suddenly there's this third horseman of the apocalypse, and the result is that there's judgment um, and there's famine as a result. I was watching um, uh, a few days ago. I can't remember what day I was watching. I can't. What day is it today? <laughs> a few days ago, I was watching the news, and they were out in California, and they were at one of the reservoirs, one of the water reservoirs that feeds water, you know, down into California. And the 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 water table was lower than it had ever been lower than it had ever been. I mean, you could see where the water had been at one time when the reservoirs were filled. Can you imagine when the second horseman of the apocalypse uh, takes away peace and there's no more peace, and then this third horseman of the apocalypse arrives and there's famine, there's no water, uh, the crops won't grow, and suddenly you've got to figure out a way to, to feed yourself, to take care of yourself, to have food for yourself. Uh, as a matter of fact, it says here that he has a pair of scales in his hand. Of course, scales commonly symbolize judgment, but figuratively, they're used here for the weighing out of food. You know, you, we'll go down, it's like rationing gasoline, and you get in a long line in order to you get, you know, three gallons of gasoline. The scales are for the purpose of rationing out the amount of food that people will have. Verse 6, and I heard the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And so food is going to cost exorbitant prices. Uh, you know how now sometimes you have to choose between whether you're going to eat or you're going to buy your prescription? You, know, you don't do, none of you have to do that. Thank the Lord if you don't have to do that. Praise the Lord for that. But can you imagine, you've you got to decide, you know, how much of this can I buy? How much food will I have? It's just going to be an incredible time uh, of famine that uh, overtakes, uh, overtakes the world. Listen to what Dr. Ryrie says about this. Normally, a penny, that's a denarius, would buy eight measures of wheat or 24 of barley. Under these famine conditions, the same wage will buy only one measure of wheat and three of barley. So we go from eight measures and 24 measures to one measure and three measures. In other words, he says, there will be one-eighth of the normal supply of food. You know, we look at other parts of the world. We look at third world countries and we see children, bless their hearts, our, our hearts break for them with distended stomachs or, you know, the various other conditions that they have because they don't have sufficient food. That's what it will be like everywhere on the earth in these opening days, months, and early years of this seven years of tribulation, and everyone will feel the effects of the famine. Then comes the fourth seal and the fourth horse of the apocalypse. 
Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth, fourth living creature saying, come and see. John, come on now. You've seen the first horse and the second horse and the third horse. Now you're about to see the fourth one. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, the color of this horse, a pale horse, suggests sickness and disease and death. But what do you say about somebody who's running a fever and somebody who's sick? You sort of look pale, don't you? Y'all say that? You sort of, look, sort of look pale today. That's not a compliment, is it? Somebody says, walks up to you, say, are you feeling all right? You look pale. <laughs> yeah, that's the idea here. This pale horse uh, comes bringing, you know, where you've had famine conditions, now he's bringing with it all of the things that go with it, like sickness and disease and death. Um, and it says a fourth of the earth will be destroyed. Did you get that? The judgments of the seal will bring a fourth of the earth. First, there'll be war. That's symbolized by the sword in this verse or these verses. Second, there'll be hunger. That's caused by famine. Third, there'll be death, probably some reference to a pestilence of some kind. And don't we know about pestilences, don't we? 600,000 plus people. Pestilence that often follows war because of poor sanitation, the contaminated water supplies. And lastly, there's wild beasts that will terrorize the people while they forage for food. And so you're, you're looking at the opening stage of the tribulation period. You say, how long does this take place? How, how many weeks and months? We're not given that. We're not told that. We're simply told that the opening days, there's got to be a time for the first horseman to come, and then for the second, then the third, and then the fourth. There's got to be time for that to occur. So we, we know the chronology of the tribulation period is unfolding before us a little bit at a time as we move toward the middle of that tribulation period. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony of which they hailed. And so the, the uh, fifth seal is opened. And now we move from earth, right? We've been on earth with the horsemen. Now we move back to heaven. Now we're looking back at heaven and what's going on in heaven. And I want you to notice that this group that he talks about here will be made up of those who have given their lives for the cause of Christ as martyrs for the faith. And then those martyrs will come out of the tribulation. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this because we're going to talk about it a little bit further down. If we get into chapter 7, I'm looking here. If we get into chapter 7, but I want you to understand that people will be saved during the tribulation. There will be people who come to faith in Christ. We're going to, we're going to meet in just a few minutes in chapter 7 some of the evangelists who will be carrying the gospel during that period of time. And there will be people who come to faith. And what chapter 6, verse 9 says is that some of those people who come to faith during the tribulation are going to be martyred because of their faith. And John sees these martyrs in heaven. Verse 10, and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You know, we should always leave vengeance to God, shouldn't we? And here are these 
who come out of the tribulation period as martyrs that are seen in heaven. They're slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held, and they're praying to the Lord for the Lord to exercise vengeance. Are you like me? Sometimes you want to take vengeance yourself. Okay, I'm feeling really alone up here. <laughs> Sometimes my old nature, well, more often than I like to admit, my old nature likes to take over and wants vengeance. But here are these who are the martyrs coming out of the tribulation period during these opening days, and um, they're praying for the Lord to bring judgment not for themselves to bring that judgment. We have to wait patiently for God to judge. God has a plan, and we have to trust his plan. Verse 11, and a white robe was given to each of them. These martyrs, each one of them had a white robe. It was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. What's he telling them? You know, you're martyrs from the early days, but there are more martyrs, more martyrs that are yet to come. That's what he's telling them. By the way, these white robes indicate that they are justified. Uh, Revelation 7:14 talks about the white robes uh, of the saints. Uh, speaks of our blessedness, speaks of our triumph. Even though they were martyred, they went to heaven. Isn't that great news? Even if it seems like you've lost here. The fact that you are a child of the living God, you're always the winner. Okay, it, you, you're always the winner. You wake up in heaven with the Lord. And so there's going to be other martyrs during that tribulation period. And it's just a, a terrible thing. So let me just stop here and talk for a moment. It's just a terrible time. It's a terrible thing for people to set aside and say, you know, I'm going to get saved sometime later. Your loved ones or your friends, if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, that's a terrible thing to say. When you say that, you're, you're, you're gambling with your eternal destiny. Your loved ones are gambling with their eternal destiny. And the problem with it is threefold. First, it assumes that you can come to God on your own timetable, that I can dictate to God when I come to him and when I don't come to him. And I don't find that anywhere in the Scripture. I find that God is the one who calls us to himself and he's patient, he's long-suffering, and he keeps calling. But the reality is, it's not about my timetable. When, I, when I'm going to get saved, it's about his timetable. The second is, is that it assumes that you'll not be deceived by the Antichrist. You say, well, I, I, you know, even if the Lord comes and I'm left behind and I've got to go through these opening days of the tribulation, I'll listen to the preaching of the 144,000 that we'll meet in a few minutes, the 144,000, and I'll put my faith in Jesus at that point. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe not. Because we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, that there'll be deception that'll be sent out. And a lot of people will be deceived by the Antichrist. Uh, people who thought, you know, at that moment I'll trust in Jesus, they're going to look at the Antichrist and say, you know, he, he's pretty good. I think I'll just trust in him. And third, third reason why you don't want to put it off is because it presupposes that you will not be killed during the early part of the tribulation. I mean, in those opening days when people turn on one another and there's famine and you can't buy food and you know, how people begin to, uh, you know, attack each other, you may die before the message of the gospel ever gets to you. You don't want to put off trusting in Jesus Christ. So we move to the sixth seal, verses 12 to 14. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. 
And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. I don't know if you see what he's saying, but in the sun, moon, and stars, in the heavens above, and on the earth itself, there are going to be cataclysmic things occurring that nobody has ever seen before, and nobody can fully explain. And you can put all the testing equipment out there that you want and you know, figure out when there's an underwater earthquake and prepare for a tsunami. But the fact of the matter is, in those days, it'll be happening so fast and so quickly around you, this unfolding of the judgment of God against mankind, it'll be happening so quickly around you that you won't have time to even think about that. Um, and that's what he's describing here. He's describing what uh, you, you'll be having, uh, the experience that you'll be having. It's called the great day of his wrath. By the way, this great day of his wrath isn't fulfilled until you get to the end of the tribulation. So it starts early on, some of these cataclysmic events, it starts early on and it continues throughout the entire period until the end of that period. And we'll see that again a little bit later in verse 17. Notice if you will, but by the way, there's six events that'll occur that terrorize men. What's the first one? Earthquakes. Any of you ever been in an earthquake? I've never been in an earthquake. Any of you been in an earthquake? I don't know what it must feel like, but I can't imagine, you know, the earth beneath you, it, you know, it's not steady, it's not stable. Can you imagine how frightening that would be? The second is a darkened sun. Uh, the third is the moon becomes red. Uh, the fourth are meteor showers or comets of some kind. Every once in a while, you know, we read where they're watching something that's coming through the, through the outer space that's headed toward earth. And, you know, most of them, all of them, as far as I know, pass the earth on one side or the other. But in those days, that won't happen. In fifth, there'll be the heavens that are rolled back. What does that mean exactly? I don't know exactly what that means. But it's a cataclysmic event in the heavens, and the six or the mountains and the islands will move. I mean, from the earthquakes and all of the uh, these, these cataclysmic things that are occurring. So, I mean, things are happening around the world. And you're watching it on the, the news, not us. We're in heaven. If you're saved, we're in heaven. But they're watching it on the news, and people can't explain it. They can't, I mean, did you see the moon last night? Did, did, you see, did you see what happened up in the sky above us? Did you see how the sun grew dark? Did you see? And they're, they're talking about these things, and they're scared to death. Would that create fear? Absolutely. It would create fear. Verse 17, he says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Uh, the great day of his wrath has come, but I just want to remind you that the day is long from being over. It's long from being over. And so you go from chapter 1 where you see Jesus, the resurrected Christ, who's coming in judgment. You see the condition of the churches in chapters 2 and 3. You're taken into heaven with John uh, to see the throne room and the uh, father who has the scroll in his hands taken by the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when you get to chapter 6, uh, he begins to unroll that scroll. He breaks the seals. And with each breaking of the seal, there is a judgment that falls on mankind during the period of, of the tribulation. But when you get to chapter 7, do we have time? When we get to chapter 7, there's a pause. I don't mean the chronology pauses, but in the writing of the revelation, there's a pause. 
and he's going to introduce you to some people that are going to be preaching the gospel during the period of the tribulation. Uh, And notice, if you will, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, there's some people that are scientists who say, well, there's no four corners to the earth. I understand that. He's not speaking in scientific language. And besides that, what do you say about, what do you say about the earth? There's north, there's south, there's east or west, whichever direction I'm pointing here. I don't know where I am. There's east and there's west. You talk about the four corners of the earth. And uh, these angels come uh, to hold back the wind, the sea, these trees. Uh, Do you realize that wind is often associated with God's blessing, but it can also be associated with his destruction? And when he says, after these things, what John is witnessing is the opening of these of these six seal judgments. He's been witnessing the opening of these six seal seal judgments. And so he's not saying when all those six are done, then this is going to occur. He's saying after these things. I want you to understand that the chronology of the tribulation may come after the opening of 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 the six seal. So after these things, let me say it this way. After these things primarily means that following his previous vision, what he's just been looking at in chapter 6, the vision of the scroll and the seals being broken, after that vision, after those things, not chronologically. Do you follow what I'm saying? He's not saying seal 1, seal 2, seal 3, seal 4, seal 5, seal 6. Oh, then there's the sealing of the 144,000. He's saying, after you've seen this vision of these six seals that are being broken, after you've seen that vision, I've got another vision for you to see. By the way, he does this on three separate occasions through the Revelation. He takes you chronologically, but then he'll come to a chapter and he'll stop. It's it's like he's given you a black and white drawing of the chronology that's going to unfold, and then he stops the chronology and he fills in some detail with color. So, so that you can understand what's going on in addition to the chronology that's unfolding before you. Did I just make that as clear as mud? Let me, let me read it to you again. After these things primarily means that following his previous vision, not just the sixth seal, but the previous uh, six seals together, that one vision as a whole, That previous vision, this new vision was given with reference uh, to the 144,000. Now, let's talk about the 144,000, verse 2. He says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. What's, What's about to happen? The seal of the living God. The seal is a mark of ownership. It's a mark of divine protection. And what what he's saying is that I'm I'm about to set apart some who are going to be my messengers during the unfolding of this first part of the tribulation. And those messengers are going to be 144,000 Jewish men who will be witnesses of the gospel. Verse 3, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, we're not told whether the seal was visible or invisible. Everybody that's worried about a chip, you know, are they going to put a chip in my next shot? You're carrying a chip with you everywhere you go. 
you do understand that. So, you know, be, be, be a little more logical here. But there will be some kind of a seal. The angels are holding back any more of the judgment of God until there, are the, there, there is the sealing of these 144,000 witnesses of the gospel of Christ. And whether that seal is something that's visible or invisible, we don't know. It certainly seems that the mark of the beast would be something visible, or at least it would be visible if you ran it under some kind of a scanner so that they could see who you are and have all the information about you. Maybe this is a visible seal. Maybe it's an invisible seal. But in some fashion, there's 144,000 of these men who are going to be sealed. Am I in verse 3 or verse 4? The seal is in their foreheads. Verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So there's 144,000 Jewish messengers who are protected against the wrath of God. All these unfolding seals, there's 144,000 of them that are protected from the judgment that's falling, the cataclysmic things that are happening all around them, the lack of food and all of it. This, these 144,000 are protected, and God is providing for them. And then he gives a listing of them from verse 5 to verse 8. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000. Uh, were sealed of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. How many is that total? It's 144,000. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, something that's interesting, just I'm going to stop here just for a moment. Are y'all still with me? We're not advancing the chronology of the, of the tribulation. After these things doesn't mean after that sixth seal. It means after this vision of the six seals. He's filling in detail. He's giving you color so that you see some things that are going on behind the scenes. How could there be martyrs if there aren't people preaching the gospel? So he fills in a detail for you to understand that 144,000 are preaching the gospel. And that's how they come to faith in Christ and they end up being martyred. And you see them in heaven praying for God to exercise vengeance against those who have killed them. And what does the Lord tell them? Not yet. Not yet. There are still some more. They're going to join you in heaven. But what's interesting in this listing of the, the tribes of Israel is that uh, usually Ephraim and Manasseh are mentioned in the place of their father, Joseph. If you look at the listing of the tribes of Israel, you usually will find Ephraim and Manasseh, sons of Joseph, in the place of their father. And you don't normally see the tribe of Levi. He's normally left out because the priestly tribe didn't receive any property that was given to them when God, uh, you know, when God uh, uh, apportioned the property in Israel to the different tribes. And what's interesting, uh, conspicuously absent from this, this list are the tribes of Dan and Ephraim. Normally you would see Dan and Ephraim. These omissions might just be related to the idolatrous lifestyle of Dan and Ephraim during their history as tribes of Israel. That's conjecture. 
We, we don't know that for certain. Why those two tribes were left out, why Ephraim was left out originally, why Dan wasn't put in, why Levi was included when he isn't normally included. We don't know all of the answers to that, but it may be that Dan and Ephraim are left out because of their idolatrous lifestyle. Uh, and that may possibly be the reason for that. Verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Stand, here's missions. This is missions. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. Remember, that symbolizes justification. With palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We're specifically told here that this great multitude comes from all nations. Why are we involved in missions? Because God wants people from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues uh, to give him praise and to worship him and honor him. And these people are saved because there's 144,000 messengers, Jewish messengers, who are proclaiming the gospel. It's just it's, it's fascinating when you see this worship, uh, this taking place. By the way, the use of palm branches here dates back to the Greek games when the winner was given either a palm wreath or a palm branch to symbolize his victory. So, so these people that we're looking at in verse 9 and 10, this great multitude that are giving praise to God, that are dressed in these white robes with this palm branch, these are victors. Uh, these are those who have conquered. They haven't been conquered. Verse 11. And all the angels stood around the throne. And, and the elders, we've, we've met them before, haven't we? There were 24 of them. And the elders and the four living creatures, we've met them before as well. Of course, we've met the angels. And fell on their faces before the throne. And what do they do? They worship God. Have we been there before? What is this, the third time that we've seen them on their faces? Worshiping God, this throng of people from all of the nations. If you don't like loud, you're not going to like heaven. Now, the truth of the matter is we'll have these ears that are perfected, so maybe it won't bother us one way or the other. But the good news is that it's going to be loud. There's going to be lots of people praising. Can you imagine, have you ever been in an arena um, filled with maybe eight or 10 or 15,000 people and they're all singing without any instrumentation. They're all singing a familiar song together. Have you ever been in an arena like that? It is unbelievable. It's unbelievably moving. And that's what heaven's going to be like. And they're going to be saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We're just going to say it, and we're going to, you know, we're going to say it and sing it again and again, giving praise to the Almighty God. It's interesting. I just want to make a note here. The only difference in the two lists of praise to God that we've seen thus far is that here, thanksgiving replaces riches. Thanksgiving replaces riches, but. The reality is whether we're saying thanksgiving or we're saying riches belong to you, we're giving praise to God. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered saying to me, 
Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? We'd asked that question earlier, and I sort of answered it in advance. But who are they? They're in white robes. Where did they come from? He's drawing attention to something. Now, he's not necessarily trying to obtain information. He's, he's trying to draw your attention to it. Verse 14, and I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the, what? Now, there were some that were already there. Remember the first uh, six seals? And there were some that we saw that were already in heaven. And they were crying out, Lord, when are you going to exercise vengeance against those who have taken our lives and martyred us? And what did the Lord say? He said, you got to wait a little while because there's going to be some more that are going to join you from later on. And here, that's what he's talking about. He's telling you that there's more that are going to join them. Verse 14, and I said to them, sir, you know, I just read that, but I'll read it to you again. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. How many years is the tribulation? It's seven First half is called, the uh, first three and a half is called the tribulation. The second three and a half is called the, yeah, you got it. And those that are standing there are in, who are worshiping the Lord are in these robes and uh, they've been cleansed in the, in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and then verses 15 to 17, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Hey, by the way, do you notice he says we serve him? We don't float on a cloud, strumming a harp for the rest of eternity. I don't know what all the places of service will be, but all of us are going to be serving him. We're all going to have responsibilities and roles to play. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them, and they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and will lead them to living fountains of waters." And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be perfect peace and total rest and complete satisfaction. Isn't that good news? Perfect peace, total rest, and complete satisfaction. And when you get the book, there's a lot more that you can read about those, those things. But I want to make sure you're with me. I don't want you to lose me. I don't want to lose you. You're not going to lose me, but I don't want to lose you. Uh, chapter 1 is the resurrected Christ the coming in judgment. Chapters 2 and 3 are the seven churches and the condition of the churches, especially during the church age. Chapters 4 and 5, we're ushered into heaven and we see God on the throne who's got a scroll in his hand. Jesus, the only one who's worthy to take the scroll, he takes it from the hand of the Father. You get to chapter 6, he begins opening the seals. With each seal comes, well, the first four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But then comes continuing judgments. And then he stops the chronology. And he says, this is what I've been telling you is going to go on. Now, I want to go back and I want to tell you where these martyrs came from. These martyrs came from hearing the preaching of 144,000 Jewish witnesses who were proclaiming the gospel, and they believed in Christ, and they died as martyrs, but they're okay. They're okay. They're in a place of rest. They're in a place of perfect peace. They're in a place where no harm can ever come to them again. And when you get to chapter 8, he will pick up the chronology again. And the chronology of the, of the, uh, of the tribulation will move forward. 